0: Agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, The government, the government, the government, the government, government, Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, attorney and former deputy assistant to President Trump, May Mailman. All right, let's do this. Hey Mike. Hey. So, we have a lot to cover. It's been a huge week in the Supreme Court as the end of the term always is. And we're going to hit all of the big cases and maybe some other stuff if we have the time. But before we do get to that, I just wanted to give everyone a quick update on the show for the next few weeks. Uh my, my wife and I are going to be in Italy and France uh, for most of July actually. We're looking for a potential place to move now that we've both uh, taken a buyout from our teaching positions at NKU. And uh, we we have one more semester of teaching, but at the end of 2023, we are done moving on to new things. And uh, we might be doing that moving on from Italy or France, depending on how this scouting trip goes. Uh, It's uh, pretty exciting, but regardless of where we end up, I will still be doing the podcast. In fact, One of the reasons I wanted to do this is so I could devote more time to politics guys type stuff. But that's longer term. And in the near term, the point is, is for the next three weeks after this episode, Trey and Ken will be doing the show. I'm going to try to drop in an interview i recorded recently somewhere in there but aside from that i will not be on again until i think july 29th and uh depending on how jet lagged i am god knows how there i will actually be so jay might make quick work of me i don't i don't know but but anyway i just want to let everyone know what is going on with the show and uh yeah so let's uh Let's get at it. And May, I thought you could start us off with the uh, case a lot of folks were talking about earlier this week Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard.
1: Yeah, so we've got two cases here Students for Fair Admission versus Harvard and versus the University of North Carolina. Students for Fair Admission is a, I guess you'd call them a conservative legal group that has cared about. Uh, ending racial discrimination and has brought several lawsuits. They were behind the University of Texas lawsuit, which they lost in the Supreme Court. And here against Harvard and North Carolina, students for fair admission won the records. If if you are a proponent of using race-based college admissions, what you did not want was these two cases in front of the Supreme Court. The records were pretty brutal with college administrators in very crass terms calling people brown and treating them differently on on that basis. The statistics were pretty bad in both. If you were a white applicant to the University of North Carolina with a 10% chance of admission, you would have a 98% chance of admission if you were Black, and this is regardless of your socioeconomic status. Um, And then at Harvard, if you were a Black student in the top third academically, you would have a nine times greater chance of being admitted than an Asian student and a six times greater chance of admission then a white student, you know, all sorts of different problems, clumping Asians, no matter whether you're from Afghanistan or whether you're from China, all into the same bucket. A lot of racial stereotyping, just just terrible facts, in my opinion. Uh, so the Supreme Court ruled that Harvard and North Carolina cannot discriminate in the way that they were. I think that the most powerful statement from just Chief Justice Roberts was ending racial discrimination means ending all of it. But there is a lot of discussion among lawyers about how broad this case actually is, because it seems like you can still discriminate on the basis of race if you satisfy strict scrutiny. Probably you can't just say, I like diversity and that'll do it, which is kind of what these universities did. But there is still the strict scrutiny test out there and it hasn't really been clarified except for that you can't just say diversity. Um, And I think the other maybe wiggle room here is that the Supreme Court explicitly blessed that you can absolutely ask people in their admissions essays, you know, tell me about yourself, tell me about your difficult circumstances including your difficult racial circumstances. You just can't do you can't use it as a proxy for a box checking exercise. So, I think we we are headed toward a lot of litigation in the future, but Mike, I uh I've got a, a lot of questions for you. So first is what, how will this actually impact the classroom? You know, the university said, well, you know, we need diversity. We, we can't have diversity without this. Our university is going to be unable to educate their their kids after this.
0: Well, I, I agree. I, I strongly agree with the idea that racial diversity in the classroom is a good thing. I don't think really anyone on the court necessarily disagrees. With that and, and so that's if there's one element right where we can all I think come together it's it's that and I mean if we take a look, for instance, I believe it was Michigan which ended their affirmative action program. We saw the percentage of black students drop precipitously and and, and yeah, that's a concern, but but I do think there are other ways to try to achieve those goals are not necessarily as. Straightforward. They're not necessarily as cost-effective, but there are other things that that can be done. But but you know, to your point, this doesn't rule out right the uh, having some sort of racial plus factor, and I think that's important to to emphasize. That. To me, the best statement of where we're at actually doesn't come from the majority opinion, but comes from Justice Sotomayor's dissent, where she said uh, the court concluded the policies are unconstitutional because. They serve objectives that are insufficiently measurable, employ racial categories that are imprecise and overbroad, rely on racial stereotypes and disadvantaged non-minority groups and do not have an endpoint. and And I think that that to me very well summed up the majority opinion. And so you can kind of use that as a list saying, well, can we come up with more measurable objectives? And uh, more precise racial categories and that sort of thing and I think the answer is maybe uh, and I know that a lot of folks at universities are going to be working on that and so yeah I agree with you I expect selective institutions to try really hard to to work within this new framework and I expect they'll come up they'll come up with something it's not going to be what it was before but uh, like you I expect more core challenges here
1: yeah so what do you make of the logical endpoint or the eventual endpoint of university? I don't like to say affirmative action. I like to say racial discrimination because I still think affirmative action is legal. You can say, hey, you uh, didn't have opportunities growing up, and we're going to give you a boost. That, I think, has always been non objectionable. So this is you know, racial preferencing, racial discrimination, racial affirmative action. Um, But in the Grutter decision 20 years ago, the idea was that we don't like this business of sorting people on the basis of race, but we feel kind of like we have to do it uh, sort of as a a past remedy, although the Supreme Court said it's not as a a remedy for the past, Um, but that there has to be some endpoint, right there has to, affirmative action has to be working toward no affirm it, it, it should be eliminating itself, and instead, what I have seen is not just the continuation of affirmative action in universities but the explosion of racial preferencing everywhere, businesses, i think you see that k through twelve education. <laughs> Do you think the logical endpoint is still important? Well, you know, um, and it, yeah. oh, then, then how do you what do you do? How do you structure a system around that?
0: Well, I mean, I, in the greater decision, I, I took it as not so much as I read that decision and, and reread that decision, not so much saying this will stop in 25 years, but sort of throwing that out as well, hopefully in a quarter century sort of thing. And it seems to me that the, that the issue is not trying to pinpoint when this will end, but but the institutions having some sort of measurable standard for when it would end. And so, as you pointed out, saying, well, diversity is good. We're going to keep on doing this because we get more diversity with this than without. I agree with that. But but to me, the fundamental problem is that this this does, to me, seem to violate the Equal Protection Clause and you know, as you pointed out, if you're going to do that, well, then that has to pass that strict scrutiny. And so there has to be a compelling interest and it has to be narrowly tailored. And of course, the burden of proof is on the institutions who want to do this. And so for, I understand that the frustration, but to my friends on the left who say, well, the court hasn't made it very clear exactly what, you know, what needs to happen here for them to do that. I, I guess I would say I don't really see it as the court's job. If you're going to violate, you know, or the Constitution, well, then in this sense, you need to come up with the standard. Not the court doesn't have to write a roadmap for you. I guess so. That, that's kind of where I'm at. that, but, but, but I also want to say, and that's going to sound like I'm anti uh, anti diversity, and I'm certainly not. But to me, the, the bigger problem is. By the time we're talking about college admissions, it almost seems to me that too much has been kind of baked in, if you will, because if there is uh, sy- systemic racial disadvantage and, and disparities and problems with diversity, and I believe there there is – the place to take care of that the way to take care of that I think ultimately is at the like pre k uh, grade school high school level, so by the time kids are looking to apply to selective institutions and I should point out that that 's you know a minority highly selective somewhere around twenty percent uh that that they are on an equal footing, and we do have problems with inequalities in school systems and and, and that 's i think where we need to best deal with it as opposed to giving, you know, something like race a a plus factor, I guess.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with that point. I was a Teach for America teacher for sixth graders and my sixth graders would, they're not going to be benefited at all with a bump up from somebody who would have gone to Vanderbilt and now gets to go to Harvard. That, That has no impact on their life. It it benefits them zero if they can't read. Um, and so I think that there, this, and, and not only that, there is a lot of evidence out there that if you take a student who would have went to Vanderbilt and put them in Harvard, but Vanderbilt was the better match. That, that was where they would have succeeded. And, uh, you know, a lot of students find a lack of success in, the first semester, second semester, and either change their majors so that they're no longer taking hard sciences and are no longer going to become a lawyer, no longer going to become a doctor, or um, end up quitting with college, with student loans. So you have people who, you know, take out a bunch of debt, go to a college that doesn't fit, and then have that debt and no college degree. So the affirmative action boost doesn't help the people that it should and um and actually ends up harming a lot of students along the way but one one last question i think before we move on is a lot of the commentary that i have seen on the left has been oh you know black students are no longer going to be able to get into college which i find to be incredibly racially discriminatory because i think that uh, students absolutely can work hard and go to college and maybe it's not right after high school. Maybe you have to go to community college first. But like I I, I think students are capable. But the other big uh criticism and I'm just uh reading here from both Maxine Waters and Chris Murphy. Is that they keep talking about billionaires, uh, six right-wing politicians masquerading as judges, gleefully imposing their politics on the country by fiat, and unremorsefully living lives of leisure subsidized by billionaires with interests before the court? What do you think about this push to delegitimize the the rulings? by basically claiming that they are captured by moneyed interests. Yeah,
0: that that doesn't surprise me. I mean, we've seen that right back when there was, this is way back, even before my time, you know, when, when the court was dominated by liberals who made some of these very you know rulings that are being uh, overturned in name, or you know de facto, if not you know in actuality, the same sort of thing. You know the impeachable warrant kind of stuff and, and all that. And so yeah, you get Joe Biden saying this is not a normal court, right? And 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 you know I I think it's just kind of standard partisan posturing, and at least from today's standards, right? And so it doesn't surprise me at all. But to me, what what really kind of I guess, bums me out is how little of this focuses on what the actual constitutional issues are, because this to me seems in one way, from a constitutional interpretation perspective, fairly straightforward is that, you know, there is an equal protection clause violation here. And based on, you know, Precedents of the court. Well, that has to satisfy that strict scrutiny standard. And I think that reasonable people can disagree as to whether or not that has been satisfied by these programs. I I don't think it has. And so even though I agree with the policy outcome of having more diversity and as a policy goal, I, I, I just don't see it being Okay, at least as it has been implemented by Harvard and UNC, especially as Harvard, UNC maybe is a slightly different case. I think Justice Jackson's uh, dissent and and she, of course, wasn't part of the Harvard case because I think she was on the board of governors or something like that. And it illustrates that. But but I think for me, the frustrating thing is people not being able to separate the fact that here is the policy outcome I want from well here are the procedural or constitutional requirements and they can't separate that the end always justifies the means and i have i have a big problem with that whether that's coming from the left or from the right and in this case of course this is decision a decision that cuts against the left and so we're seeing that kind of thing from the left and no i don't think that's okay at all i don't think that's really le- legitimate at all i i for you know i feel that the majority made a reasonable case here. And as much as I wish it weren't the case, I find their logic more compelling than, than that of the dissenters here.
1: Well, welcome to the vast right-wing conspiracy <laughs> night. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And, and you know, one other, before we do move on, one other point I wanted to make is discrimination is a word that has an almost invariably negative connotation. But in thinking about this, I wanted to point out to everyone that when we're talking about selective institutions, That it's all about discrimination, right? We discriminate based on all kinds of factors, academic ability, test scores, uh, background experiences, and most of that is perfectly okay under the Constitution. But because of the Equal Protection Clause, certain types of discrimination isn't right that falls into those suspect classifications. I think it's, uh, I believe it's. Let me see if I get the four right. Race, religion, national origin and alienage, which is one that doesn't come up a whole lot. But and so I think it's important to keep in mind that discrimination isn't necessarily a bad thing. Right. It's part of how selective admissions work. It's just a question of what kind of discrimination and how it's being employed. And I just wanted to throw that out there. Okay. Well, you're ready to move on to something, uh, well, not, well, different, but still with the Supreme Court here. Um, in a much anticipated decision concerning the LGBTQ rights and the First Amendment, the Supreme Court ruled six to three along ideological lines in favor of a, of a web designer who challenged a Colorado statute prohibiting discrimination and statements announcing discrimination against gay people by public businesses. The designer, uh, Lori Smith, argued that the First Amendment gives her the right to refuse to produce expressive content in support of a viewpoint with which she disagrees. And in the court's decision, which was authored by Justice Gorsuch, the majority found that Colorado's law sought to compel speech, which Smith didn't want to provide, And it would sanction her if she didn't do this through training, uh, uh, compliance requirements, as well as fines for a failure to comply. Gorsuch said that while the court recognizes the value of public accommodations laws in helping to ensure civil rights for all Americans, when those laws go from requiring that businesses serve everyone equally to requiring that individuals or businesses endorse and promote viewpoints they disagree with, that's too broad of a sweep. And the court also noted that Smith is not unwilling to work with LGBTQ individuals, but she refuses to aid in the creation or dissemination of any views, which she believes to be in contradiction with biblical truth. Now, in her dissent uh, for the court's three liberals, Justice Sotomayor writes that Today, the court, for the first time in its history, grants a business open to the public, a constitutional right to serve members of a protected class. And that's a claim the majority says is flatly untrue. The dissenters argue that Colorado's law targets conduct, not speech, and as such, it's not protected by the First Amendment. And they point out that allowing Smith to post a notice on her website that she will refuse to sell any services for same-sex weddings only has what they call an incidental effect on speech which the court has long allowed in cases of anti-discrimination and civil rights laws and they argue that Colorado's law doesn't compel speech and it would only it would allow smith for instance to offer wedding sites with biblical messages or to refuse to include phrases such as love is love and things like that and, and as such the regulation is content neutral and so smith isn't entitled to some sort of a blanket exemption and the right to post uh, essentially a notice of intent to discriminate. So May, uh, uh, where do you fall on this decision? What do you think about uh, the court's uh, ruling here?
1: Well, I think it was unsurprising and I think that it is the right end point. And if you are a traditional liberal, then I would think that you would agree with this because I think this was a small case. It's being treated as a big case, but it, it applies to artists about what, you know, where can you force an artist to perform their art in a way that the artist doesn't want to speak. It it, it really is I don't think I I think it's hard to make it much broader. But it will help The tech cases. So, coming up, you're going to have the case where Twitter says we want to censor the type of speech that we don't like. Um, And it is our speech and we'd like to say it, and you government can't force us to speak. And you've got Florida and Texas saying absolutely we can force you to host speech that you don't like. So, you know, I don't actually see much changing based on just this decision there were not uh gay couples that were probably going to go to lori smith i know this is kind <laughs> of one of the is standing issue but i it's it's true there was not a bunch of gay couples that were trying to have a very christian person make them a very gay wedding website it, it's just it's it it's not it was not going to happen um So, you know, if you're trying to think where is the next, you know, where will this apply? I actually think that the the end result of this decision will be helpful for the people who will say Twitter shouldn't be able, shouldn't have to host misinformation, disinformation, et cetera.
0: Uh, That's that's interesting. I hadn't I hadn't uh, thought about that, because for me, this was a weird one, because initially I assumed I'd be with the majority on this because the whole compelled speech thing, I am, I am, boy, I've got a problem with with compelled speech. And I think everyone should have a problem with government compelling any sort of a speech. But the more I thought about it, the less persuasive in this particular instance, this argument, and maybe it was because of uh, the facts don't. Uh, aren't Well, in this individual instance, for instance, had had Smith only refused to include se- some sort of pro-LGBT messages like love is love, that's a happy big gay wedding, whatever, right? Um, and, and she's never actually designed or been asked to design this as, as far as I know. And If that were the instance, I would say, yeah, she's got a very reasonable compelled speech argument. But it seems to me that by just flatly having having a message on her site saying, if you have a gay wedding, I will not design anything for you, even like some kind of generic, you know, happy wedding sort of thing without any pro LGBTQ messages. That to me, I think I found that the dissenters argument that that really is sort of incidental to be more uh, compelling. For instance, This reminds me, and I'm sure it reminds you in some ways of the masterpiece cake decision, right? Also from Colorado, you know, Jay and I talked about that at the time. And when we were talking about that, uh, Jay said to me, you know, it it would be one thing if someone just walked into the the cake shop and they were gay and they wanted to buy a cake. He said, it wouldn't be okay for that owner to not sell them that cake that they would sell to anyone else. And I thought, yeah, that seems perfectly reasonable. Well, to me, it seems like posting a notice saying that if you have a gay wedding, I will not sell you any website services. That is too broad of an exemption. And so while I agree, generally speaking, that that, that the state cannot compel speech, I think they go too far here in allowing Smith to have this kind of blanket exemption. And I wanted to get your take on that.
1: So I I think that that debates something that was just not part of this case. Everyone agreed that her wedding website was speech and I think that the the conversation that's being had is what's conduct and what's speech and you know that line I think is going to be hard to draw in the future but it just really wasn't at issue here and there are times where the speech is is intertwined with the person, and I think in oral argument, one example that I thought was good that came up was Hamilton the musical, where Lin-Manuel Miranda, uh, in a sense, doesn't serve white people, right? He he wants only uh, minorities to be his characters in his musical, but as an Artist, the things that he's saying and the people that he's saying it with—they are intertwined. You cannot separate them, and I think that was the same here, where the way that she was operating her business, the things that she was saying, and the the people who she was serving—you know, gay gay couples getting married—they were intertwined. They they couldn't be separated. Now there might be times in the future where those things absolutely can be separated, but I, I just don't think that that was really part of the case, and and Justice Gorsuch in the majority points that out. I think Justice Sotomayor is talking about a different case, um, where maybe that was argued, but it it was assumed that what she was doing here was pure speech.
0: And so I guess I'm struggling to I'm struggling to understand the, the distinction here. You know, can we go back to that the masterpiece cake sort of example that I gave let's say she was selling any kind of just generic website services and she was a web provider right that and not wedding specific things. you would agree that she couldn't just say, "Sorry, you can't buy whatever web hosting or something like that if you happen to be gay or use it to celebrate a gay wedding
1: so if she was like let's say minted or what's a uh wedding website, the knot or something like that. You know, there there's no personalization. It's not uh it's not the creativity, it's off the rack. And this is Justice Kagan tried to flesh this out. That oral argument, yeah, I think that there would be less of an argument that this was speech and more of an argument that this was conduct and any speech was incidental. And really what you're doing is re- you're refusing to serve and and therefore that's illegal under Colorado's law. So I, I think that I would tend to agree that that falls on the we're regulating your conduct and, and any speech that we're regulating is incidental. But here you just have different facts. That just isn't what the 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 case is here. Here you have an individual people working with an individual web designer who is putting her art. It, it would be like saying, "Hey Taylor Swift, you s- sang at the Democratic National Convention. Now you need to sing at the Republican National Convention," and, and she would say it yeah it's my conduct I guess it's singing it's the same songs but where I am singing how I am doing it has to that that I'm an artist this is my speech and so that that artistry angle that uh unique voice I think those are really just facts that you can't separate from this case and that's why I think it's a fairly narrow case uh and that just a lot of litigation is going to need to happen afterwards, which is kind of funny to me, because really, maybe the problem is in our pluralistic society, having government have restraints on private businesses is just a fraught thing. Um, and we needed it post-Civil War. We needed it to address Jim Crow. Um and, and so you can definitely see why you would want racial discrimination protections, but as these are proliferating to like every aspect of I mean, New York just passed, you can't discriminate on the basis of weight, like these things that are just permeating our lives. And Justice Gorsuch is part of the problem with that, because he went and expanded Title VII, which just says discrimination on the basis of sex to include sexual orientation and gender identity. So at the same time, while Justice Gorsuch is saying, like, I think that we should have more regulations on businesses that are not racial protections, he's then trying to kind of carve out little things. And it's it's, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's just going to be litigation, litigation, litigation. Um, and Justice Gorsuch is, in my opinion, part of the problem.
0: <laughs> wow. Okay. But, but so then, can I go further? And w- would you say that you are generally op- opposed to public accommodation laws or anti-discrimination? I mean, I, I guess I, I, what I'm hearing you saying is that there was a point at which they were necessary, but Absent them, you can still have people potentially saying, "Well, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to use my creative content to serve black people or to serve our, or what have you." And it seems to me, when we're talking about, I agree with you when we're talking about, you know, y- you cannot be made to create something to that is in fact an expressive act. But I think reasonable people can disagree as to what constitutes an expressive act, you know, making a making a widget. Probably not. You have to sell your widgets to everyone. Right. But is this wedding website are all wedding websites? rise to the level of expressive acts that that you can uh, grant or deny to certain groups based on your personal beliefs? I I, I don't really think so. And I think that's maybe where we have kind of a parting of the ways on this one.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't think so. I don't think all websites are expressive acts. Like I said, if you are if you own the not and you are just a you know, you select, do I want a pink background? Do I want this font? And do I want uh, a details page or not? I think you could make a, a real argument that that is not expressive on behalf of the not. What I'm saying, I guess, is that I thought that, uh, I, I don't know whether to say the left or traditional liberals or big tech advocates, you know, what whatever that group is. I thought that that group wanted to make more things be speech, even if it's algorithms or what have you, because you want to protect people to be able to say no to things that they don't agree with. And the pro- the thing is, is that we in the society generally think that uh gay individuals should be protected, and so we don't like Lori Smith's speech, but. You can't think of the First Amendment through that lens. She should have a right to say n- no to certain things, just as Twitter should have the right to say no to other things. And so, by saying, "Well, your website isn't speech," I just—I don't think that you're, everyone's going to like that. I, I don't—I don't think that, that end result is going to be a good place because all of a sudden, websites are going to have to host a lot of things that they don't like. Right.
0: Yeah, coming back to that, that's an interesting point to me because it sounds like from a practical matter in terms of the actual consequences, you think this might actually in some ways be a a bigger win for, if you will, the left with the whole – not being able to being able to ban misinformation, whatever you call misinformation, right? These these platforms, although the Twitter under Elon Musk is a very different animal than uh, you know the Twitter was previously, that sort of thing. But but I like I said, I hadn't thought about that, and I'm wondering, do you think that like I think about some of the stuff that uh, Governor DeSantis is doing or trying to do in Florida, that sort of thing? Do you think this ends up being more of a practical win for the left, the cultural left than then for the right? I think so. Um
1: and we'll see. So the court paused uh briefing basically asked for the views of the government in those tech cases. So there's almost a purposeful we're addressing this three or three creative first. Um making a pretty strong statement on compelled speech and then addressing Florida's case next term, um, when it absolutely could have decided the tech cases this term. So there's no way to read 303 Creative as beneficial for Governor DeSantis. There's a way maybe to read it as it doesn't apply because 303 Creative didn't define what is and what isn't speech, um what is and what isn't a i don't know a a utility basically mm-hmm. that you can regulate um so there's a way to read it that it doesn't apply but i think there's a way to read it that's negative and if there's no way to read it positive, and there is a way to read it negative that that's not a win for the right long
0: term right all right. Well, let's move on to yet another huge Supreme Court decision, another eagerly to one. Uh, this one, Moore versus Harper. And uh, May, well, why don't you start us off with this one?
1: Yeah. So Moore versus Harper is a long saga in North Carolina, where the conservative North Carolina legislature drew maps after uh, legislative districts after north carolina gained population and gained a seat that was challenged uh in court and the north carolina supreme court at that point a left leaning supreme court used the north carolina constitution which says basically that elections shall be free and fair to say that these districts were unconstitutional um that gets taken up on the, to the supreme court on one argument only which is not whether the north carolina supreme court got it right whether you know any interpretation of the north carolina constitution but whether the north carolina supreme court had a role at all whether they could reach in and decide uh anything pertaining to legislative districts. And that theory is called the independent state legislature theory. And it basically is that the constitution's elections clause assigns the legislature, whatever you mean by the legislature, and that can be defined in different ways. It can include a governor veto, for example, but that the legislature is the entity assigned by the U.S. Constitution the authority to determine the times, places, and manners of elections? And because the U.S. Constitution assigns that duty to the legislature, whatever that means, uh, that the, the Supreme Court, a state Supreme Court, cannot willy-nilly decide what it wants to do, or you know, maybe not willy-nilly, but based on the North Carolina Constitution. Now, this was. At one point, a really big question, because a lot of conservatives who don't believe that the 2020 election was rigged in the sense that there were Dominion voting machines being affected by Venezuelans or whatever (laughs) theory. Right. uh, But that it was unfair and improper in the sense that some of the rules changed at the very last minute, not because of legislatures, but because of state Supreme Courts, governor, executive orders, all sorts of just last minute and unlawful, not passed by the legislature, changes. So, for example, Pennsylvania said you can count ballots after Election Day, even though the legislature says you cannot count ballots after Election Day. Um, and, and so it seemed for a while that the question of how much authority does the legislature have is very, very consequential uh, to future elections. Then it seemed like North Carolina uh, had a, a new slate of elections. The uh, North Carolina Supreme Court became conservative. They basically reached back and said, no, 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 the North Carolina su- constitution does not require re you know a, a redoing of these legislative districts so the case in my opinion seemed uh, dead okay well there's a question before the supreme court that's that's no longer consequential meaningful live there, you've got a conservative supreme court in north carolina now that no longer agrees with striking down these legislative districts but the supreme court went and decided it anyway, and made a strong and yet confusing statement that absolutely state Supreme Courts have a judicial review role. They can interpret their state constitutions and other state laws, and they can strike down things that the legislature does related to elections. However, there's some sort of limit to that. And uh, state supreme courts can't do just whatever they want. They kind of have to recognize that the elections clause exists and is real. And it, it was without substance, without examples, and I think will create a lot of litigation and no clarity moving forward. Um, but I guess Mike, does this stop litigation because now we have an answer from the Supreme Court, or does this invite litigation?
0: Yeah, I I I think it. I think it invites it, and and it's weird to me, right? Because when I when I read this uh, opinion, my first thought was, uh, kind of, I guess, what yours was is, why why did they grant cert here? Uh, Because it seems to me that I was trying to wrap my head around this, right? Because if the issue is whether a state court can review laws concerning federal elections that are passed by a state legislature, well, North Carolina Supreme Court did review that, right? And so I I struggled to find, when I read the dissent, I was like, yeah, this is, if if there's anything that's more moot than this, I don't know what it is exactly. Not only that, but I want to point out that a case in 2019, Rucho versus Common Cause, it seemed to me that the court sort of ruled on this. They said that provisions in state statutes and state constitutions can provide standards and guidance for state courts to apply. To me, that's the Supreme Court saying yes. State courts can apply standards when it comes to federal elections, and so I guess I'm unclear as to what what problem this solves or what this does. And it just it just seemed to me to be deeply weird. I mean, I don't I don't agree with the independent state legislature theory. And I guess my theory here is that a majority of the court, right, the three conservatives, the three conservatives and three liberals, in the majority decided this is important enough that we need to make a really definitive statement on this before the 2024 elections. But as you pointed out, it wasn't that definitive of a statement. And it it seems to me to be a a case that the court really had no right to hear. Just sort of, if you're going to be a judicial activist, I guess, uh, and you're going to just ignore the rules about moodness, at least do something. Uh, And I don't think they really did that here.
1: Yeah. For me, uh, this does a couple of things. Yes, it invites litigation, but then also it really increases the stakes for state Supreme Court seats. Um, And I guess I predict that people are going to spend a lot more money on state Supreme Court races. They're going to be a lot more partisan, you're going to um, have certain promises about, I'm going to end this elections practice or or that. But I don't know, do you, do you see this as a positive or negative for the way that we select our state Supreme Court yeah, justices? I,
0: I think you're right. And to me, it seems like the remedy here, and I think this would be a deeply sort of conservative remedy, is is for states themselves through changes or or maybe clarifying language in their state constitutions, make clear the limitations on their own state Supreme Courts uh, in in these matters. I think that, you know, I think the North Carolina Supreme Court's ruling uh, both ways actually was reasonable. I think you can make a reasonable argument that the sort of gerrymandering that was done does impact the ability to have uh, I think it was free and fair elections or whatever the phrase they use but I also think it's reasonable to say well no that's really a political question and to me this is this should be decided at the state level and if state constitutions aren't clear enough in giving guidance to state supreme courts then hey that's the job of the people in the states to make those clarifications but yeah practically in the short term I'm sure you're right that this almost certainly make puts more into more at stake in uh state supreme court elections.
1: Yeah, and unfortunately I do think it's going to continue to degrade some trust in elections until we have that clarity that you're talking about in our state constitutions and in state law because I don't think that independent state legislature theory would have gotten as much air as it's gotten recently except for some of these rulings where you have very broad constitutional language like i said north carolina elections shall be free and fair what does that mean and state supreme court justices re meaning oh it means that this house should be in this district rather than in that district well what you know that that seems oddly specific so you know what's your prediction as far as trust in our elections like do we just need to make clear laws it, as you said is this going to be bad for our you know democratic system what happens to that general perception
0: yeah i, I think i think you're right i think it's really difficult because there's this tension between giving uh, having laws and having constitutional provisions be written broadly enough so that they can apply to a wide variety of circumstances that the that the writers might not have thought of. But if you make them too narrow, then they're not necessary and they can be abused. And I think there are instances where partisans on both sides put their thumb on the scale. And that is an issue. And I I, I think everyone should have a problem with courts stepping in at the last minute and, as you put it, changing the rules, especially when it seems like those changes are contravening something that the elected representatives of the people and the primary rule makers have have said. And so that's a huge problem. And I think it's more of a problem now than it was, say, 10, 20 years ago, because we have a much more hyper-partisan environment and also because Elections are so much closer. And so, those sort of decisions, like whatever Pennsylvania Supreme Court, or uh, they can make a real difference in terms of the outcome of the elections. The stakes are very high. And I-, I don't know that there's a good solution to this sort of thing because I do think it's important to have certain broad provisions about things like free and fair elections. And you can't specifically, you can't specify every. Little element, there needs to be some room for judicial discretion. In the end, I think we count on a certain amount of uh, uh, a certain amount of correct behavior, if you will, uh, of non-partisanship or rising above partisanship by our judges. But if those judges are more and more selected through extremely partisan processes, well, of course, you're going to get more partisan judges, and then the whole thing kind of. Falls apart, so yeah. When it comes down to the legitimacy issue, I I don't see that really changing any. uh, I guess is unfortunately is is the answer I have.
1: Yeah, and because Moore versus Harper basically was decided the way that uh, the left wanted, which is to throw cold water on the purest form of the independent state legislature theory and you've got the Alabama voting rights case, you have Texas's lawsuit against Biden's immigration policies, you've got a lot of very big wins for the left, so much so that the justice that dissented the most this term was actually Justice Thomas. Why is it that there that people still sense? And and I I don't think that this is just messaging. I think actually people do really feel that this is an ultra maga court. When the vast majority of the decisions have, have not been, uh, you know, the partisan at all, then there's been a lot that have not gone the way that a pure right leaning partisan would want, you know, I, how, yeah. how do you change that perception when you do have a lot of, you have the, you know, Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh going with the three liberal justices quite often this term.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I, I don't know about you, but it's been frustrating to me for a long time. I think the, the quality of political reporting in general is awful. But when it comes to reporting on the Supreme Court and judicial decisions, it's like extra awful. And and I think we see that here, you know, and, and I do agree that there are. I would argue at least two justices who are pretty. Well, you have the, the the Thomas Alito. You know, I've joked that Thomas is kind of like the the, the crazy uncle sort of thing at the dinner party. The and, and Sam is kind of there too, maybe, but on some things. But but they are a minority. I think John Roberts has been a, a, a has been a huge disappointment to a lot of conservatives because I think. He's very much a pragmatic, centrist sort of conservative. Yeah, he's certainly a man of the right. But but, yeah, that's how I see it, is that this is not a court that I think is hell bent on just driving an ultra MAGA uh, agenda. Come what may and the Constitution and the law be damned. Right. So I agree with that. And it frustrates me deeply that I think so much of the reporting and the commentary and the tweets and all this on this court are just, I think, downright awful. It's like, yeah, it's a lot more conservative court than I would like. And I would be in the minority on most of these things. But I agree with you that the characterizations of this court by folks on the left are just flat out wrong or at least exaggerated. And I think, though, that comes from I know I still, I see some of these decisions and I still think back to 2016. I get mad at the Clinton campaign all the time because I think, man, if, but just for a little less hubris, it would have been a 6-3 liberal majority and all of these things would be going in a, a lot of these things would be going in a better way, but I think that's rolled up in a well, as well because it's an emotional thing, you know, and I think for a lot of folks separating legal questions from kind of the emotions and the policy uh, outcomes, that's extraordinarily difficult. And I think that's what really drives a lot of this.
1: Yes, I, I thank Hillary Clinton every day for the sixth record. <laughs> yeah, I bet
0: you do. Uh, in a fourth Big decision uh, this week, another one along ideological lines to, to cap off the term. The Supreme Court ruled six to three that the Biden administration's plan to cancel over $400 billion in student loan debt exceeded its authority. The administration argued that it had the right to do this under the Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students Act, or HEROES Act of 2003, which grants the Secretary of Education the power to waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision applicable to the student financial assistance program as the secretary deems necessary in connection with war or other military operation or national emergency. Now, the Trump administration actually evoked this same authority to suspend student loan repayments and the accrual of interest during COVID. The Biden administration continued this. And that's a pause, actually, that the Biden administration plans end in August. Now, but this go- obviously goes further than that, the cancellation of debt, which the court said, nope, you cannot do this. And in the majority opinion, Chief Justice Roberts wrote that while the HEROES Act allows for waivers or modification of student loan provisions, it does not allow what he termed the re- rewriting of the statute to the extent of canceling $430 billion in student loan principal, which would in effect be not a modification, but in his words, transformative. Now, in in response to the argument that the act allows not just for modifications, but waivers, which give broader authority, you'd think, Roberts writes that the secretary's comprehensive debt cancellation plan is not a waiver because it augments and expands existing provisions dramatically. It is not a modification because it constitutes effectively the introduction of a whole new regime. Roberts also repeatedly refers to the major questions doctrine, and that's, of course, the principle that in matters of major political or economic significance, the court will not defer to administrative agencies, but will actually presume that Congress didn't grant authority to agencies unless such authorization is clearly stated in statutory language. Now, the dissenters here came in, I would say, pretty hot, just as Kagan opens with, in every respect, The court today exceeds its proper limited role in our nation's governance. And Kagan writes that the court shouldn't have heard the case in the first place because the plaintiffs, the six states that brought suit, don't have standing because they don't have a personal stake in the outcome aside from, you know, being opposed to the administration's action. When they turned to the merits, they found clear textual authority for the action taken by the Secretary of Education. Essentially, waive means waive. And there's no stipulation as to, you know, the size or the impact of the waiver. Kagan writes, The expansive delegation is so apparent that the majority has no choice but to justify its holding on extra statutory grounds. So the majority resorts, as is becoming the norm, to its so-called major questions doctrine. And the majority again reveals that doctrine for what it is. A way for this court to negate broad delegations Congress has approved because they will have significant regulatory impacts. Thus, the court once again substitutes itself for Congress and the executive branch and the hundreds of millions of people they represent in making this nation's most important as well as most contested policy decisions. Bold words. So what do you think of this decision, May?
1: Well, I think it's unquestionable that the you know the the blanket forgiveness of 10 to 20,000 dollars of student loans was not legal under the heroes act i thought maybe it's an open question about who has standing so the supreme court unanimously actually ruled against standing in one of the cases against a private person saying because they did not have access to the 10 to 20,000 That they were harmed, um, but then did find that Missouri was harmed because Missouri has a student loan provider that uses the fees that it collects to give to Missouri universities, uh, that the state of Missouri has some amount of control over it, that that this was an instrumentality of the state. And I, I thought that that was a closer call, but the correct call as far as the legality of what Biden did. Uh, you know, before Biden forgave all these student loans, nobody was even talking about this pathway to do it. Elizabeth Warren uses a, a completely different argument, saying basically that the secretary has authority over student loans generally and should use that very broad authority to forgive student loans. But the idea that the HEROES Act authorized this enormous giveaway, I, I thought was indefensible. Justice Kagan gives us a, a somewhat defense, but it is indefensible. And one, you, I've read all the legislative history because I've, I wrote a brief in this case uh, on behalf of the state of Ohio and other states. Um, if you look at the legislative history, they are clearly talking about a very small number of people who have been harmed personally and then they're talking about not even waiving those students' debt, but rather letting them pause payments um and It's because the Congress didn't allocate money to this program really they they could have they could have made some broad uh waiver provision, but instead they wanted it to be very narrow and no forgiveness so it's funny that since this has began. You have students who left college to go fight wars, and they still had interest accumulating on their debt because that was the interpretation of this. And all of a sudden, students who might not have been harmed by the pandemic at all. The funny thing about it is that if you had a college degree, you actually were probably benefited uh, more so than than. Uh, Americans who did not have college degrees, because they still had to go to work, and you have a laptop, and you you know you've got a desk job, and and you can continue to make money. So I I thought that the Heroes Act was indefensible, and what I'm hearing, I guess, on Twitter from from Elizabeth Warren and others is that they now want Biden to use uh, the provision that everyone thought he was supposed to use to try and waive student loans again.
0: Yeah, on I, I, that just. Biden, I believe, is the Biden administration is planning on using the uh, Higher Education Act, the 65. And uh, the reason why the HEROES Act was used is because under, I believe, under emergency powers, you could just do that very quickly. But the Higher Education Act will require the standard regulatory comment process and the Administrative Procedures Act, sort of all that sort of thing. It's a much longer and more involved process. I, I would also argue that there's a provision in the uh, Higher Education Act that specifically, I believe, calls for the relief the secretary can relieve as opposed to just waive or modify that you could argue maybe indicates more intent. But I, I, I think it'll be, end up being struck down on similar grounds. And I have a problem with that. So I guess maybe I'll start with where I think I'm pretty sure we, we agree. I actually am not an opponent of the major questions doctrine and that clearly the dissenters are like oh this big made up thing but i i think it makes sense as a general interpretive principle right that that yeah i think on on most things you give deference to administrative agencies for technical matters and that sort of thing and that's standard chevron deference but yeah when it comes to huge things and there is no clear statutory authority you shouldn't just assume and I'll give you the. I think probably the best example of this is is DACA under the Obama administration, right? This whole idea that you can just had give blanket exemption from prosecution using what prosecutor some notion of prosecutorial discretion. I, I'm all. I was all in favor of that policy outcome, but to me that is so clearly exceeding executive authority. But to me, this is a very different case because to me. This is the court inserting itself and essentially trying to backstop Congress and saying, well, certainly they couldn't have meant this. And and to me, it and this is weird, right, because it'll be a weird reversal because here I'm the liberal being the textualist saying, hey, wave means wave. And if they wanted to say wave except in instances where the regulatory or economic impact is past X, they should have said that. But to me, it's not it's not the court's role and it shouldn't be the court's role to step in after the fact, to correct or poor wording in statutes. And so that's why I end up uh, siding with the dissenters on this one. Interesting.
1: Um, yeah. So I think that there were problems well beyond wave or modify. I think the chief justice picked maybe the smallest provision that he could have and. You know, modify means something small and wave. Okay, fine. I can read wave, but tell me what you're waiving. Oh, they weren't waiving anything. You can't point to little specific provisions that he was waiving. It was, they're kind of just like waving all of student loans and creating a whole new program. Um, but even if you were to get beyond that, um, I think that the statutory scheme requires that the relief put people in a place that they're not worse off because of the emergency. So what that is supposed to look like is wherever you were going into the emergency, that's where you are coming out of the emergency. And that's why you can see that in practice previously, what this has meant is not forgiving debt, but rather pausing payments or for some students who are like kicked out of programs if they're not attending those programs uh, in in continuity, that they're not going to be kicked out, but you don't get to like pass college uh, just because there's an emergency. You still have to finish college. It doesn't change the requirements. It doesn't make you better off. And I think that was another, for me, huge problem with this is that by waiving the student debt, you were not doing what the statute said, which is to make sure people are not worse off. You were actually making people better off. Um, and you know, the another problem, people had to be directly affected by the emergency. They tried to argue that everyone is directly affected by the emergency, but they themselves made sure that people were not affected by it by pausing student loans the entire time. Not only that, uh, th- this applied to people who were living overseas, to places w- that you never had lockdowns. I, just the the cancellation of student debt was so far afield from the statute in so many ways beyond waive or modify it, it. You could have decided this case on multiple grounds.
0: I, uh, that that's interesting, and it, it maybe suggests to me that I, I would have more of a case under the higher education. And I haven't, I haven't read that nearly as, as extensively thoroughly as I have the the provisions of the HEROES Act. But again, I don't, it's weird. I agree with you and I disagree. I agree with you in that, uh, that was the, that was possibly the intent, but what, What concerns me always, and I think whether it's the left or the right, is when the court gets into the business of trying to somehow ascertain what Congress might have wanted to do. And and my response to that is, well, you know, it reminds me of uh, Jay and I used to, uh, we sometimes we joke about, right, that stamp that Justice Scalia jokingly said he wanted to pass out to all federal judges, stupid but constitutional And I think if you're a person of the right, maybe that's how you say I don't actually think that student loan forgiveness is is a good idea because I think it's way not nearly targeted enough. But to me, just because it's a bad policy idea or just because Congress is imprecise in writing legislation, I can agree with you that, yeah, this this shouldn't this program shouldn't work this way. But to me. The remedy is for Congress to be more precise or to go in and revise their legislative language through the standard democratic process as opposed to the court imposing itself, these nine unelected people and saying, well, we have just decided this is what it means. That, I, that traditionally, that of course gives conservative pause, conservatives pause. And I think that should give all of us pause.
1: Yeah, I just I guess I read the statute very differently. I don't see that that Congress wrote some sort of loosely worded, open-ended thing, and the, the justices just have to look at it and say, well, I guess it's it's loosely worded and open-ended. I think that it's exactly the opposite. I thought it was a very clear statute, um, and it has been applied before, where uh the Secretary of Education has said, Okay, here is the thing that I am waiving, for example. Uh, teachers can teach for 10 years. And if they teach for 10 years, all in a row, then they get their student loans per, uh, forgiven. Well, uh, if you join the military, or if there's a hurricane, or if what, you know, disaster happens to you, then we will waive the requirement that those 10 years be continuous. So that is a specific provision and a specific waiver. And and I think that that is clearly, I, I don't find that to be open ended i i don't find that you need to go to Congress to ask what did you really mean? um I see it right there in the statute, and Justice Barrett actually says that in her concurrence, Yes, we do have major questions doctrine I'm not opposed to necessarily saying that this is a major question. It was just unnecessary in this case because you do have such clear language
0: got it oh yeah, that actually i while i don't I, while i'm not entirely convinced, I think that's a reasonable interpretation of the word waiver. And it seems to me then, based on what, what you're saying, that if there were, like for instance, in, in the Higher Education Act, and I won't I won't hold you to any of this because this will come up though, right? Because there will be a regulation and it will be challenged, if there were a provision saying that the Secretary may forgive or words to that effect, then that would be a different that would be a different question for you and for the court that you're saying, right?
1: Well, you know, we can talk about the Higher Education Act. I actually have an article in the Federalist saying that the Higher Education Act does not give
0: (laughs) Joe Biden authority. You're ahead of me on this one. All
1: right, loans, Um, and yes, I guess so. I'm, I'm not saying that I'm against the major questions, Doctor Nieder, and and I was part of the team litigating in Ohio, the vaccine mandate case, which was also a major question where you had potentially broad language saying that OSHA can regulate the workplace. Does that mean that you can force private businesses to force their employees to get a vaccine? And the answer was no, in part based on major questions. And and I thought that that was a perfectly reasonable use of major questions doctrine where where you do have broad language. Here we don't. And so I agree with you that the Higher Education Act um, gives the Secretary of Education the authority to enforce, pay, compromise, waive, or release any right, title, claim, lien, or demand, however required, including any equity or right of uh, redemption. and. I guess the problem is, is I would say that you just have to actually read the full statute and you have, you know, in the English language, the specific governs the general. And throughout the Higher Education Act, there are specific provisions about economic hardship and where you can pause uh certain loans and that's that sort of thing. And so to say, oh, we have all these specific provisions and we're just gonna forget all of them and use this broad provision, I think is just not how the English language works. Um, I think the other problem is that when this language was written, Congress actually owned or Congress didn't own the debt. It was owned by private uh companies. And there was a need to be able to address, oh, the student died, the bank still needs money, what are we going to do? There there was a need to try and figure out some very complicated and unique one-off situations. Now that Congress owns all of the debt, there's like this statutory language that no longer actually Fits, uh, you know. They've got the anti-deficiency. Have you got a whole bunch of things? If you want to read my article, search the Federalist and May Davis, um, and you can have all all the thoughts you you would like.
0: I I, I guess I don't I hear what you're saying, and, and but I guess to me. And again I feel like I'm making sort of the the small the small C fundamental conservative argument is is against an activist court kind of inserting itself in that because I do think that there are some problems you know the thing you pointed about the debt not being owned by the government at that point right and I think that is important but again it seems to me that the remedy the proper remedy here is for Congress to go in and amend the Higher Education Act, as opposed to the court just sort of jumping in and, and saying, well, here's what we think makes the most sense from, I, I, I guess that's that's where I get hung up on this.
1: Yeah, I, but it's tough because you would want the Secretary of Education to have one-off authority to deal with weird situations that no one has thought of um but that are, you know, small and you you don't want to handcuff the secretary. But then on the other hand, this is where the major questions doctrine comes in. For things that Congress obviously thought of, for things that are big and, you know, should students who haven't paid their loans for two years, three years, four years, just have them forgiven, you you can't just act you, that, that freewheeling, I think, is, is just authority it's you can argue whether the department of education is lawful in the first place like where where did the authority come from but then when you are empowering them to do things that actually congress truly never would have thought about this is the major question doctor would have thought about and said we're not going to give that authority that that is just a bureaucracy that I don't think people are going to like when the power is in um, is in the wrong, sure, right. in your opinion, yeah. wrong.
0: Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I see your point. And I think that's sort of the the animating principle behind the major questions doctrine, right, is, is to kind of constrain government power. And sometimes that cuts against you. But on the other hand, it might actually help you out when, like you said, power's in the wrong hands. And I guess this is where probably listeners from... Uh, my fellow my fellow progressives or liberals probably have some issues with me because i find that a lot of these sort of issues i tend to be at least temperamentally uh, somewhat more conservative than I am on a lot of policy issues. And so I guess I'll, I'll issue kind of a blanket, I don't know, uh, apology or explanation, because throughout this, I felt like I certainly have not necessarily been a staunch defender of the progressive view on these things, because in a lot of instances, it's just not sort of how I see this sort of thing. And I think you can be a policy progressive and not necessarily be uh, a constitutional progressive, if you will. I know that because that's who I am. And Maybe there aren't a whole lot of us out there, but, but I'm I'm certainly one of them, I think, for the most part. All right. Well, that was a lot of Supreme Court this week, May. In fact, it was all Supreme Court, wasn't it? Uh, we have a bunch of other stuff we want to get to, and we'll get to that in the midweek show. We, you know, we, there's been some stuff going on in Russia, for instance, and uh, we want to talk about uh, this, about some vote, vote security issues. And, and May, I know that's an issue near and dear to your heart. We're going to get to that midweek show, take some listener questions as well. And we hope you join us for that. But for now, we are all done. And uh, thanks for listening. If you're at this point, we hope you've listened. <laughs> to the show and we do appreciate your listening and support if you're not a supporter we hope you consider becoming one it's really simple to do there are a lot of benefits you get ad-free versions of everything we put out you get the full supporter exclusive midweek show not just the preview there's membership in our politics guys discord group that's a lot of fun and always an interesting place a bunch of other things check it out go to patreon.com slash politics guys you can support us as well on Venmo, or at Politics Guys, or through PayPal. You can find all of our support links, as always, in the show notes, as well as at politicsguys.com support. And if you'd like to get that midweek show, I mentioned the full thing, but you're not in the position to financially support the podcast at this point. I totally understand. Just shoot me an email, Mike PoliticsGuys.com, and I will get you set up with that. And whether you're a supporter or not, it really helps us out if you can subscribe and rate and review us on whatever podcast app you happen to be listening on, as well as sharing episodes on social media. If you want to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can do that, a mail at politicsguys.com. There's Discord, as I mentioned already, and also we're on Facebook and Twitter. You'll find links to that in the show notes as well. And finally, a very special thanks, as always, to our most excellent executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, Don Oglesby, and Ivan English. We'll be back with a new episode for you next week. We hope you'll join us.